Thank you, Gareth, for coming and giving us that update on the, the fantastic work that is going on um, in one of the most difficult areas of our country. It's, it's, it's great to hear. And I, I always say whenever we have a, a mission partner um, come and speak to us, um, take as long as you like, speak as long as you like, because you can hear from me any week of the year, but we only get to hear from our mission partners um, once, once a year. And sometimes <coughs> they take me very literally. <laughs> and so we get to the end of a service and I think, oh great, I've got a, I've got a ready-made sermon for next week. Perfect. Um, but other times they're very punctual and do exactly what they say they would do. So, um, Gareth, thank you for, for that this morning. You were indeed very punctual. So, I'm afraid that means that you get a sermon. <laughs> so... This week, I've been, um, I've been struck by three, three stories that I've heard. Um, the first one, I, I actually shared when I was preaching up at Perry Street last week, so if anyone was there, apologies, you're going to hear it again. It was about a book I've read recently, um, a biography of Ernest Shackleton, the great Arctic explorer, Victorian explorer. And... Um, <clears throat> I was bought this book a couple of years ago, and I've never actually got round to reading it cover to cover, but what I do is often, it it interests me, the the idea of Arctic exploration. I'm not going to do it, (laughs) I'm far too too soft for that, but it interests me, the the, the challenges, the unique challenges, the hostile environment into which people go to explore. And um, so I dipped into this this, um, book on Shackleton, and I find it, you read one page, and before you know it, you've read 30. You've, you've promised, I've, I've promised my wife that I'll clear out a bookshelf and I pick up that book and half an hour later she comes up and says, what have you been doing? And I sort of sheepishly blame Shackleton. There's this great moment when Shackleton is um, planning his expedition to the South Pole and it hadn't been reached before, the pole. Other explorers had got close and there were records for how close they'd got, but it had never actually been reached. And Shackleton wanted to be the first adventurer, the first explorer, to make it all the way to the South Pole. And he spent, spent many, many months raising funds and calculating um, how much, how much uh, they'd need in the way of food, clothing, fuel, how many dogs they were going to need, um, uh, uh, refining the technology for the sled, sleds that they were going to use to take them across the, the snow and the ice, plotting their route, all this stuff. And eventually they set off. And there were four of them in the, the sort of the key team. There were different teams along the way who were, who were going on different journeys, different routes, and that it was planned that they would, they would cross over their paths and leave supplies at certain points so that they could be, so that Shackleton's team could be replenished. But it was these four guys who were travelling together along with their dogs and everything else that were going to the pole. It was when they were two and a half thousand miles into the expedition. They had suffered with their health. There had been a dysentery-like illness that had just kept on going around and around, all four of them. Um, Dogs had been lost and sometimes killed. They had lost supplies to um, accidents and ice cracking and things like that. 
And the weather had been atrocious. They had been put several weeks behind their, their schedule because the weather had been so bad. There had been blizzard after blizzard and they'd woken up and had to dig themselves out of snowfalls. It had been terrible. And throughout the whole thing, Shackleton keeps his eyes focused on the pole. He is determined to become the first explorer to reach the South Pole. And they get 94 miles from the pole. 94 miles. Now that's a long way, don't get me wrong. But when you've just done two and a half thousand miles, 94 miles isn't that far in comparison. But Shackleton's diaries record his concerns about his, his men and the likelihood of them actually making it to the pole. And in his diary, he records that he has no doubt that they can cover this last 94 miles and get to the pole, and that he would be the, the leader of the first expedition team to have made it to the South Pole. He knows they can do that, but he also knows that there is absolutely no way that they'll make it back. And he reaches this point where he, he says, I, I know that if we take a single step further, we are not going to make it back to the supply depot two and a half thousand miles away. Essentially, if I go for glory and reach the pole, I'm sentencing my men to death. I know they'll follow me, and I know that they probably would rather do it, but I love these men. They're my responsibility. I cannot do it. And so he takes a decision to turn back the diaries of the other three guys, throughout the next month or so that it took them to, um, to get back to a, a supply depot to find food, um, the, their diaries, they're, they're very cutting about Shackleton. They call him a weak leader. They say that this shouldn't have, the decision shouldn't have been made. They should have pressed on. But when they finally make it back, one of them acknowledges that if Shackleton had done so much as five more minutes heading for the South Pole, they would not have, any of them, made it back alive. And he says the courage that it took for Shackleton to put his men before his legacy was immense. As a Victorian explorer, he came back a failure. He didn't get the headlines, he didn't get the glory. His funders were disappointed in him but he'd saved the lives of himself and his three men as well. One night, just as they were approaching this decision point, they were all sitting in the tent together. And um, I love the attitude of Victorian explorers. It's, it's unique. I think we've lost it now. Um, they, were all, they were all sitting in their tent, and Shackleton writes in his diary, um, uh, morale was low. Anderson and another one, I can't remember, um, had been, had been hit by dysentery and had been suffering all day. Um, we hadn't eaten properly in over two weeks. We'd each lost more than two stone. Um, we didn't have much food. The dogs were, dogs were dying off. We only had two left. And we still had 800 miles ahead of us. <coughs> so to lift morale, I decided we'd, talk, we'd have a discussion about how to raise funds for our next expedition. <coughs> and I thought, you're mad. That's not raising morale. 
I'd be sitting there thinking, Ernest, if you think I'm coming on another one of these trips with you, you're, you're nuts. You're crazy. But that was his way of lifting morale. I love that attitude. Everything was against them. But the attitude was, right, chaps, when this one's done, where should we go next? Somewhere a bit tougher. Oh, dear, oh, dear. I saw a similar sort of attitude in a six-year-old boy this week. My, my son, my six-year-old boy. He was given um, a present of a new Bible this week. And he was absolutely delighted with it because he's at that age where children's Bibles, um, they're either very, very young um, and you think, well, I don't want to give him a, an adult Bible quite yet. And we've been looking around at different ones and this gift was given to him. It's absolutely perfect. It's, 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 it's biblically, it sticks to biblical stories and biblical truth, um, but it explains it in a very easy to understand way. Um, but it also has some quite challenging issues in there for a six-year-old that he's encountering for the first time, moral dilemmas that he's having to stop and we're having to talk through. And um, on Friday afternoon, I was, I was taken aback a bit because my wife and I picked him up from school and the teacher came out and said, oh, he was, he was telling us all about the new Bible he's got and how much he's enjoying reading it. And he's asked if he can bring it in. And I said, that's absolutely fine. He can bring it in next Friday and tell the class all about it. I'll be completely honest with you. Part of me was so proud. I thought, wow, that's brilliant. I'm so pleased with him. Fantastic. But there was also a part of me that thought, oh no. Oh no. Because I remember being one of the kids that made fun of the Christian in my class. I'm not proud of it, but I remember being one of those kids. And I wasn't the only one. And I remember the hard time that Christian kids had at the school that I went to. And I thought, my boy's going to go in next week and he's going to stand there and he's going to hold up his Bible and he's going to be so proud and he's going to tell a class of 30, unless he does it in assembly, in which it will be over 300, about his Bible and about his God. I'm really proud of that. Don't get me wrong. This is a good thing and I wanted to share it because this is an encouragement. And I hate the fact that there's a piece of me that says, hmm, Mm, careful, 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 Timothy. But you see, actually, the attitude of the six-year-old child is far closer to the, the attitude of the, of the explorer. The attitude of the six-year-old doesn't think, well, hang on a second, I don't want to look a bit weird, I don't, I don't want to look odd, I'll, just, I'll keep this at home, I won't, I won't talk about it. The attitude there says, what's the, and, and the conversation that we had, what's the most important thing? is telling people about Jesus. And we've always said that to him. We've always said that. And throughout our youth and children's work, throughout church, we always say, you know, share the gospel. Don't be ashamed of your faith. And yet then as a father, I felt this. And then I read Matthew 18. And I was reminded of Jesus. He was talking to his disciples. And he's asked the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? Jesus called a child and had him stand among them. 
I'll tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Jesus calls this child into, into what must have been a fairly intimidating situation. There's him, there's 13 men standing around, plus there might have been others as well. Jesus and his 12 disciples. It's quite a big group. And he just calls this child, this, this, this innocent, unknowing child, into their midst. He doesn't even talk to the child. The child is just there. But Jesus makes the point of saying, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who becomes like this child. And I read that yesterday and I was, I was struck because I suddenly realised that actually I should, be, I should have the innocence and the willingness to share my faith in the same way that a six-year-old boy wants to take his Bible, this present, this prized possession that he loves reading, he wants to take that into school. He doesn't care, it doesn't even dawn on him to think of what people might think. Because he knows that there is goodness and truth and love and, and values that will benefit other children in this book. And he wants to go in and share that and say, look what I've got. Look what I've got. This is brilliant. I want to celebrate it. And I realised I need to become more like the six-year-old in my midst. I need to become more like the child who every day I, I discipline and try and, I don't discipline him harshly, but I keep trying to keep him on what I think is the right track and I hope he's learning from me and I try and be a good father and I try and be a good role model. But actually, Jesus says, no, you're the one that needs to be looking at him as a role model. If we can rediscover the innocence of the child in our midst, the innocence that doesn't, doesn't put self-image first, instead puts God first, the innocence that says God is good and other people need to know that, then we will enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But of course, we have to be careful, don't we, how we do that. How are we going? Because a child in an assembly or a classroom can go in and, and do show and tell and, and hold up a Bible and it's, it's cute and it's sweet and it's lovely. And it's important because he's speaking to his peer group, but, but it's, it's, it's careful, it's protected. When we share our faith as adults, we have to be careful. We have to make sure that we do it in, in, a, in a way which, which benefits those around us. I saw on the BBC website last night, there's um, British Transport Police are looking for um, a, a, a Christian who was on the tube, um, I'm not sure which day it was, but one day this week, and was shouting at two Jewish children sitting on the tube. And he was shouting that the Jews had killed Jesus and the, the Jews had a lot to answer for, and he was quoting Bible passages condemning Jews 
and eventually one of the fellow, a fellow passenger got up and who had been filming this whole thing so he could report it to the British Transport Police, got up and swapped places with these children and <coughs> a Muslim lady came over and started defending them. A Muslim lady defending Jewish children against an overzealous Christian. And I read that and I thought, this is, this is national news. This is going to, so many people are going to read this and, and have their, their, their mindset, their view of Christianity reinforced. Bible bashing idiots. And you think, no, no. Where are the headlines about all the good being done? Where are the headlines about, about the work that we've just heard about? Or where are the headlines in our local news about, about the street pastors and schools pastors and schools ministry and the forging men and all the different activities and initiatives and events, all the help that is given to so many vulnerable people in this town and across the country? But of course that's often not headline news. Because often the help that we give, we don't shout from the rooftops. But as soon as we get it wrong, as soon as someone misinterprets the way that we should be communicating scripture, suddenly it's out there. It is headline news. When Paul writes to the Colossians, he urges us, to conduct ourselves in the right manner. Firstly, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Do we portray an image of peace as we go out into the world? When I saw that Christian on, uh, I read that report about shouting at these Jewish children, I thought, where's the peace of God? Where's the peace of God in that? As we, as we go about our, our work as Christians, as we take people to hospital visits, as we go and see people, as we answer that late, late night phone call and, and respond to a need, Where's our attitude? When, when, someone, when someone rings us late at night and says, can you come? Do we see it as serving God? When we turn up on the doorstep, are we looking to get away as quickly as possible or are we there for as long as is needed? When someone turns up and says, I'm new to church, can you, can you show me around? Do we greet them with a smile, with warmth, with love? Now, I think we do here. I think one of the biggest strengths of this fellowship is fellowship. Welcome, come in, yes. But I met up with some fellow ministers that I was training with this week, um, and two of them were saying that they're setting up a welcome committee at, at church. And I said, that sounds a bit formal. And they said, yeah, um, <coughs> We've had problems of people walking into church and being told, oh, well, the service started ten minutes ago. And being sent away. And you see, those people doing that, they, didn't, they just didn't think. 
Famous thinking, what a service has started. You're going you're gonna to feel embarrassed if you walk in now. It's, people's heads are going to turn. They didn't think, this is God's house. Of course you're welcome. Of course you're welcome. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. We have so much to be thankful for. I love it when mission partners come and bring updates because they remind us what we have to be thankful for. They remind us that there are so many people in the world, not necessarily thousands of miles away, sometimes right on our own doorstep, who have so little, whose needs are so great. In this passage, Colossians 3, three times, in verse, in verse 15 we're told, be thankful. In verse 16, we're told, have gratitude in our hearts. In verse 17, we are told that we should, whatever we do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. (coughs) Excuse me. We have so much to be thankful for. We have been given everything that we have by God. There is nothing that we truly own. Everything that we think is ours is actually it is on loan from God. God's given it to us, including the very life that we have. This is why we are called to serve wholeheartedly, as if we are serving God and not man. Because if we have that attitude, if we have the attitude that, that every act of service that we are called to, every conversation we have, everything, everything that we do, if we have the attitude that we are serving God, then suddenly it changes our whole perspective. Suddenly our entire focus becomes on doing the best that we can for those around us because we see God as the ultimate recipient. Every, every meal we provide, every welcome that we give, every handshake, every smile, every letter, every phone call, everything that we do is as if we are serving God. If Jesus was to walk through that door now and ask for a cup of tea, there would be a stampede of people to go and turn the kettle on and make sure that he had it exactly as he liked it whatever type of tea it was. And if you wanted some weird herbal tea, we'd be shooting up the high street to find it. We'd be knocking down the door of Holland and Barrett to get in and and find whatever concoction he'd asked for. And then we'd come back and we'd find the best, the cleanest cup. And we would go, wouldn't we? Because we'd be serving the Son of God. We're told, we're called to serve wholeheartedly as if we are serving God and not man. So this morning, as we, as we remember the work of London City Mission, as we remember some of the stories that were shared um, in the video and then by Gareth, as we have conversations with the other um, representatives who are going to be joining us later on for lunch, Let's remember also, we are not called to shout in the faces of those that don't agree with us, to tell them that they're condemned and that they're wrong and that they're in some way any more evil than we are. 
let's remember that we have a God who has blessed us in so, so, so many ways. We have so much to be thankful for that when we have an opportunity to serve him, however that opportunity presents itself, we should serve wholeheartedly because the opportunity is given by God and it's God that we're serving. And also, let's remember that it's really important that we don't worry about our own self-image. We get over ourselves And instead, we become like the child called into the midst of the disciples. Jesus said, whoever humbles themselves like this child, whoever drops the pollutants of the world that enter us as we grow up, whoever rediscovers that innocence, that purity, will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So let's make sure this week that we recognise every opportunity that we're given. Every opportunity that comes our way to, to in, make an impact on other people. Whether it's swallowing our pride and reacting with humility. Whether it's letting our anger die down and instead responding with peace whether it's showing love to someone who has not shown love to us, whatever the situation may be, whenever it is presented to us, let's make sure that we are a people of God, we are a godly people, that the reaction that we, that we show to others is a reaction that we believe that Jesus would have shown as well. We might not always get it right, but let's make sure that we don't always get it wrong either. Let's pray.